I was detained, arrested 11 times and was involved in uh, three shooting incidents. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so that you don't miss a single episode. Lieutenant Colonel Stephen Harrison, MBE, served for two years as a full-time touring officer with Bricksmiths. These tours were hazardous three-man vehicle-borne patrols collecting intelligence on the Warsaw Pact forces in East Germany for up to five days and nights over a series of four-month patrolling periods. They lived in the field, did not carry any weapons, while Soviet and East German troops were nearly always armed and their ever-present sentries carried live ammunition. The tours operated in the closest proximity to these hostile and aggressive Warsaw Pact troops whose orders permitted them to use whatever force necessary, including opening fire to protect the property that they were guarding. We hear in detail of Stephen's experiences of these demanding and frequently dangerous situations, as well as how he used his language skills to engage with opposition troops, which made him a particular threat to the Soviets. Do make sure you don't miss part two of this fascinating interview, which is published next Saturday. Cold War history is disappearing, but a simple monthly donation will keep this project going and allow me to continue preserving these incredible stories. You'll join our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Hi, I'm Andrew, and I'm very proud to support Cold War Conversations with a small donation each month, because Ian's put together such a brilliant range of interviews. If you do support the podcast, your wallet will be a tiny bit lighter, but your brain will be very, very thankful. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. I'm delighted to welcome Stephen Harrison to our Cold War Conversation. As far back as I can remember, there was never anything else that I wanted to do. And my father had been in the army and he was a tank officer, his father and his father. So it was a generational thing. And I suppose it was the easy way out for me just to follow in my father's footsteps. There was no pressure placed upon me, although I know that he was secretly very glad when I made that decision. But for me, it was a done deal Right from an early age, uh, even when I went to school, I joined the Combined Cadet Force and I was intent on on, on having a, um, a career in the Army and in particular serving on tanks, which is why I ended up in the Royal Tank Regiment. What role did you have in, in the Royal Tank Regiment? To begin with, um, everyone starts out as a young officer, as a, a troop leader, a leader of a troop of tanks, three tanks, and in those days it was chieftain tanks bless them the old and bold chieftain tanks with a leyland engine believe it or not um, and that tells you quite a lot about the reliability so and it started <laughs> off as, as, a, as a, a tank troop leader there were four troops in a squadron and i was one of the troop leaders and then progressed on there to becoming second in command of a squadron of tanks and uh, my last job at regimental duty was uh, as commanding a squadron of tanks 
Uh, and in between commanding tanks, we had tours. What was the view of the Soviets at that time? What, what was the army telling you about the Soviet threat and your potential effectiveness should the balloon have gone up? Well, everything was about the threat. And uh, we were told constantly that the threat from, in particular, three shock army who were based just across the inner German border uh, was substantial and that they had uh, in, in intentions to uh, and the capability to cross the inner German border and be at the channel ports within five days. So all of our training was geared towards that sort of scenario, a defensive scenario whereby we would uh, fight a, uh, a fighting withdrawal back through um, West Germany, uh, back to the coast and destroying bridges on our route. So all of our exercises were to deal with defensive scenarios. But inevitably, in order to keep morale high, I suppose, they all our exercises ended up with a massive counterattack and a counterthrust, and we all went home for tea and medals. Um, but, but generally, it was, uh, it was defensive scenarios. We operated in, in training areas up in the northeast of the country and uh, came across Soxmiths, uh, incidentally, quite often because they were obviously interested in the way that we were training and where we were from. But we spent a lot of our time on exercise. And one of the um, really rewarding things about being a tank troop leader in those times was that in the autumn, there was normally a very large scale exercise and all the restrictions on movement were lifted. So we had the full run of the West German countryside, the fields, the woods, the forests, the roads, um, where we exercised alongside our NATO partners and caused horrendous damage in, in, in the fields. And there was always the uh, always the odd West German farmer who would invite us in to uh, come and drive over his sugar beet crop or something or pull an old barn down, knowing that the claims commission weren't far behind and he would be compensated richly for it. So that was a three or four week exercise in, in, in autumn where we used to just go mad in the, in the West German countryside. Really good fun. Really enjoyed it. So how did Bricksmiths appear on your radar as an opportunity? I was called in by the adjutant and asked, was asked if I would like to go and learn Russian. Now, that was a strange request in, in, in Germany in, in those days, and I, and I inquired as to why. I was told I didn't need to know quite why just yet. I had a background in languages. I was... I had a German mother, spoke German at home. I did German and French at uh, at university. So I always had a, a fascination in learning new languages. So I said, yeah, I would be interested. And uh, the next step was that I was just told to make my way to London to meet somebody in the Special Forces Club. And the person I met was the current chief of Bricksmiths, although I didn't know that at the time. I knew that he had been director of the Special Forces. And I, I went to London and we met in his club and we had a lovely lunch and we talked about everything other than uh, why I was there. And the and the meeting ended cordially and I, I went back to Germany. And it was only thereafter that I found that my interview had been for uh, a, the tour officer's role in in Bricksmith, and I had I had passed the interview, and therefore I, I was selected to go off to go and uh, do language training at the uh, Defence School of Languages, which in those days was in Beaconsfield, to do the eighteen month long interpreter course. 
and my appointment as a tour officer in Bricksmiths was conditional upon me passing that course. So it wasn't for another 18 months or so that um, I knew that I was going to uh, go to Bricksmiths as a full-time tour officer, by which time I knew where I was going. I had spoken to other people, and it sounded one of the most exciting things that a young officer could do in those days. And so um, I was delighted when I eventually got out to Berlin to join the mission, as it was called, in November of 1986, so at the height of the Cold War. It sounds like you probably had a natural aptitude for languages, but Russian is quite distinctly different from many other languages. Did you find it difficult or, or not? I warmed to the course. I, I loved it. Uh, I, I loved the, the, the mental discipline of learning a language in the way that they taught it. At Beaconsfield, in typical military fashion, you had daily tests, you had weekly tests, you had monthly tests, and you had to pass all of these continually uh, in order to progress on the course. Every day, you had to learn 20 new words and 10 new phrases, and they were tested. And so the course was split up into eight units, and you progressed through literally a page a, a day, learning a new particular grammatical skill or phrase. And that was coupled with conversation classes with native Russian speakers. And I absolutely loved it. And um, I was fortunate enough to do well on the uh, course and emerged with a, a first-class uh, interpretership in, in Russian. And my background in, in languages certainly helped because Russian is an inflected language with, with many cases and that was not a new phenomenon to me. It was to some people who were doing the course. They had never heard of nominative, accusative, dative, and all the rest of it. But I, I, I loved the discipline. It was, a, it, was a, it was a steady 18 months at Beaconsfield where every day was predictable. Because we had the unit books, I knew what I would be learning on day 285 of the course. It was that structured. It was that military that you were able to plan your learning. So I had, uh, we had two hours of conversational classes every day. We had six hours of grammar uh, teaching and then uh, two hours of homework every, every night. So it was a very structured and ordered environment. I loved it. Had you ever been to Berlin before or was this the, with your posting with Bricksmith, was it your first time in Berlin? No, it wasn't my first time. My father was posted there in the early 70s. Uh, so I had lived there for uh, a couple of years. And also my mother's family were in Berlin. So we had visited Berlin during my childhood on several occasions. So the city was very, very familiar to me. Uh, and that helped as well. I, I, I didn't have to spend much time in, in finding my feet in, in West Berlin. But of course, East Germany was, was something totally, totally different uh, for me. And of course, I, I arrived there with the preconceptions that had been taught to me here in West Germany about how, how the Soviet army were an extremely capable, ruthless uh, foe who had the uh, capability of piercing and, and punching through um, various corridors in West Germany and, uh, and, and, and putting us all to the sword. When I got over to East Germany and met Soviets, Soviet soldiers and Soviet officers, it, it rather dispelled uh, that myth. What were those first days in Bricksmith in, in Berlin like? Was it, it was some form of acclimatisation or were you straight on a tour 
to uh, sort of been shown the ropes? My very first uh, time uh, crossing the Glenica Bridge was to go as uh, alongside the chief of the mission as his interpreter to a formal meeting with the Soviets. And so that was a, a baptism of fire as far as my linguistic abilities uh, were concerned. But within a few days, I was sent out on my first operational tour. And I was very fortunate in that regard, in as much as the first or three of the first five operational tours I carried out uh, were with a particular tour NCO who, who was a warrant officer in the SAS. And he showed me the ropes. He was very experienced, very capable, as you'd expect. And he showed me a style of touring, which I adopted uh, and I maintained throughout my time with the mission. He looked after me. There was absolutely no doubt in anyone's mind as to who was leading this tour, although I was the officer and, and the, the tour officer in name. For those first few tours, it was my job just to keep my mouth shut and my eyes open and my ears open uh, and try and take the, the photos that, um, the photo opportunities that came along. But I was very much under instruction of of a man for whom I have and continue to have the, the highest possible regard. And you, you mentioned there a, a certain approach to to touring can you describe what what that approach was well to begin with of course i didn't know that there was any other approach because uh this 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 warrant officer showed me um, how to tackle various types of targets so you could have opportune targets and that was uh driving along and something would appear uh, either a column of vehicles or you'd come across training on a training area something for which you know you hadn't planned there were the pre-planned targets, so we were targeted to go to Soviet installations, training areas, emergency deployment areas, and then there were the, the air programs as well. So when I started touring with, um, with this warrant officer, his style of tackling a target was very direct. He would sit off on the target, we'd, we'd stop, we'd discuss he would go through what we were going to do. He'd also go through what we would do if things went wrong. And so that everybody was on the same hymn sheet before we went in. But when we went in, we went in hard. And he always used to like to drive in, get in amongst the Soviets and rely on the sense of surprise to buy us sufficient time for me to take photographs and for him to do all the tape recordings. Um, and that's because he knew that the Soviet system was such that authority to make decisions was taken at the highest levels and that junior commanders and junior soldiers were not encouraged to use their initiative. And therefore, when something unexpected happened, there was a very slow reaction time. So if, for instance, we were on a training area, his preferred approach and the one that I adopted was to just drive into and in amongst what the Soviets were doing, rely on the element of surprise, gather what we could and then leave, normally followed in hot pursuit by somebody who had eventually twigged who we were. As I became more experienced in the mission, I realised there were other ways of approaching things and they would involve perhaps sitting off a target and concealing yourself and just watching and not being observed. Uh, that did reap some rewards, but of course it was a matter of luck as to whether something came your way or not. And that, 
other means of touring, other styles were to approach a target, have a look in, withdraw, go round to another angle, come in, have another look, take a few pictures, withdraw. That had a limited shelf life because inevitably you would be seen and then you would be chased either by the Soviets or the East German military uh, and you would probably come under the surveillance of the Stasi, the East German secret police. So, Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Uh, the, the long answer to your short question is I adopted a style of touring which was very direct, which involved uh, getting up close and personal with the Soviet military, doing what had to be done, relying on surprise and then leaving the area, perhaps coming back later and doing the same. But by that stage, you had to count on the reaction time uh, being much quicker because obviously they had been uh, forewarned. When when the tour program was published, you, I used to look at the people I was touring with and and I would know what sort of tourer I was going to be going out with. Was I going to be going out with somebody who perhaps took a more cautious approach or would I be going out with somebody who, who would buy into um, my style of, uh, of touring? And what was of paramount importance is that everybody in the vehicle had to buy into what you were going to do. And if they weren't or if they were concerned, then you then you didn't do it. The people who I came to admire most were our drivers. Yes, the tour NCOs were very experienced and they were specialised in particular areas. But it was the drivers who got us both into and out of trouble. They were highly skilled professional people who had been taught how to drive um, evasively, defensively, aggressively. And when things got very exciting, uh, the job of the tour officer was redundant. I just kept my mouth shut, told the driver what I wanted to happen and uh, just let him get on with it. And they would then drive this uh, three-ton Gelenderwagen uh, in a way which um, sometimes defied gravity. So I had the utmost respect for the people who were driving our vehicles, who had a, had a say in how we toured, but ultimately it was the decision of the tour officer and the tour NCO as to how you were going to tackle a particular target. When you say get in amongst the Soviets, did you try and disguise your vehicle in some way to sort of buy you a bit more time? Well, accidentally, on occasions, our vehicle number plates may have may have become obscured and and there may have been some branches which have had stuck on on the vehicle uh, 
purely by chance. Uh, at night, we were able to disguise our vehicle as a uh, any number of vehicles, including a bicycle. So at, we had a huge light array on the front of the vehicle, including a bicycle lamp. So at night, you could be just de- just de- detect a bicycle bulb. We had uh, the same light array as a Trabant. We had the uh, same light array as a WAS 469 Soviet military jeep. So we could select at night what sort of light signature we were going to put on. And indeed, we could extinguish all the lights if need be um, and uh, and drive on night vision goggles. One of the uh, favorite uh, techniques we had was to isolate our brake lights. So there was a switch operated in the central panel by the by the driver which would then prevent the brake lights coming on when we brake. That had practical benefits when we were going to be leaving a road and and driving off into the woods. uh, We didn't want the fact that we were braking to be seen by anybody. And it had also a wonderful effect on the uh, narcs, as we used to call them, the Stasi, who used to follow us. And if we wanted to... um, give them some to th- something to think about. We would draw them in quite close on the autobahn and then drop anchor. And of course our brake lights wouldn't come on and, and they would, um, they would get uh, somewhat of a surprise. So um, by day uh, the air tours would make efforts to disguise their vehicles more than the ground tours because the, by necessity, the air tours who were covering airfields had to remain in relatively static places because the airfield doesn't move and they had to be south of the center line in order to catch the uh, the underside of the aircraft they were photographing so there were only a few places that they could go and in some respect air touring was more difficult in that respect because you were limited to particular geographic points whereas on the ground side we were constantly on the move and um, we would have a tour brief which was given to us before we left west berlin written by the ops officer and it was more of a wish list than anything else. So we might have for a four-day, three-night tour, we might have, I don't know, about 10 or 15 targets which he wanted us to visit and various collection requirements which had been given to us by London on that target. But the understanding amongst tourers was that whilst we would follow that brief, uh, if nothing else was happening, any current activity which we bumped into would take priority and we would uh, divert to it the more experienced you were in the mission the more liberal your interpretation of the ops officer's brief was and and just a a, a little tale to illustrate this uh, at the end of my time in east germany i'd been there for a long time i i considered myself an experienced tour officer and i was coming to the end of my time and i had developed over the years several favorite places I like to go because I was guaranteed to get some action there. And uh, one of my last tours, I was asked to go on and do some boring nonsense uh, in, in the um, in the south of the country. And uh, I, I just sort of nodded and set off on my way. And I went to the other end of the country uh, because I had heard from a friend of mine that uh, T- the Soviets were taking delivery of the new T-80B Uh, tanks there and uh, I thought I would get a bit of the action up there so I was totally out of area I was about 180 miles away from where I should have been now that would have been okay had it not been for the fact that whilst I was away 
unfortunately, my wife had a miscarriage and I was away in East Germany. And of course, we didn't have any communications in the vehicle. So there was no way of alerting me to the fact that uh, there was a, a medical issue that I had to go back to Berlin for. So my colleague was sent out to come and find me and bring me back to Berlin. And he looked at my tour brief and he saw that I should have been where I, wherever the tour brief said, but he knew me well enough that he decided he wouldn't go there and he would go to where in fact I was. And I will never forget this. I was in the middle of a, a dark, wet wood in the middle of nowhere on my own in my Gore-Tex kennel tent observing T-80s and I I knew that nobody was was around I knew I was clean and I was collecting all sorts of bits and pieces and it was about three in the morning and I heard this this voice saying Stephen Stephen and I thought I'm dreaming I am dreaming this and then it came a bit nearer Stephen, see, I popped my head out of my kennel tent and I could make out this figure coming through the woods on night vision goggles. And it was my good friend who had travelled 180 miles on a whim and he had gone to a wood where he thought I would go in order to cover this. And he found me. He found me at three o'clock in the morning. And I was actually quite annoyed that someone found me. But uh, on the other hand, he was able then to pack me up into into his vehicle and drove, drive back to West Berlin, where I attended to to my wife. But uh, that was one instance of the, the the tour officers understanding what each other's habits and preferences were. And uh, I was going against all the protocols. I was ignoring my tour brief, but I had gone to this wood to watch um, Soviet tanks, and my good friend guessed correctly. And drove out all the way, and damn him, he he found me in this in this wood. Um, but on the other hand, I'm, I am grateful he did find me. Incredible, incredible story. And the the Galanda wagon looked a little bit like the the Waz Jeep, didn't it, to some degree, which which helped you sometimes. Yes, it did. Uh, it was it was the same color. It was slightly bigger. This was a Mercedes G wagon, heavily uh, modified with uh, all sorts of attachments uh, inside the vehicle and outside, um, long-range fuel tanks. It was bigger than the WAS 469, but certainly at night, and if you weren't too close, a dark green vehicle going along a road could could be mistaken for a WAS 469. We wore uniform, British uniform, uh, inside. It was rather casually applied uniform. Um, I had my own headwear, which I used to wear, and... uh, we all used to wear East German boots, which we had bought, not just because they were better than the British Army issue ones, but also because when we were out and about, we didn't want to leave footprints, which could be detected as unusual. So the answer to your question is that the, the Gelenderwagen at a distance could be mistaken for um, a WAS uh, 469. You mentioned a moment ago that you had no communications back with base i i understood there was some sort of bleeper system that that you had yes so we had no direct communications what we had was in locked inside the vehicle was a bleeper which could be activated from west germany and it would just make a, a bleeping noise 
if you were on tour and you heard the bleeper go off, um, you would extricate this bleeper, which was locked away in a hidden place in a vehicle, and you would remove the back of it and remove the inside back of it. And on there, the, the, there would be a combination of uh, digits and, uh, and letters. Uh, using um, a, a decoding uh, formula which we had, that would equate to a, a, a 10-figure grid reference somewhere in the DDR. And the protocol was that you would go to that 10-figure grid reference the next day at, I think it was 10 p.m., you had no idea why you were being bleeped. You just uh, went there. And the reason why we did that is because what would happen then is the uh, in West Berlin, they would send out another tour. And that tour would go over the Glienicke Bridge, let's say on the Wednesday. And you had crossed the bridge the previous Monday. And what would have happened is that on Tuesday let's say, the Soviets would have informed the British that no tour was to go into the following area because there was a specialist exercise taking place. <laughs> so because we were, had uh, crossed the Glienicke Bridge before the Brits were notified, it was deemed that we could not reasonably have known about this activity. And therefore, what would happen is the, the tour that came out on the Wednesday would, would go to the uh, rendezvous where we would meet them at 10 o'clock, an exchange of information would take place, and the tour uh, that had come to give us would then return back to Berlin, back over the bridge, and the Soviets clocked them out. And mean meanwhile, we, uh, who had left on the Monday, we now had this fresh information. And there's nothing which is guaranteed to get a Bricksmith tour interested in an area than when it is put out of bounds. So we would move straight into the restricted area and we would behave as we normally did. And when we were caught, and inevitably uh, you would be caught, you could plead complete ignorance of what was called a TRA, a temporary restricted area. But in the meantime, you would have a lot of funds because the Soviets would do this. They'd impose what's called a TRA when they were holding a major exercise similar to the ones I described earlier, which we uh, took part in in West Germany, where the Soviets would have the run of the East German countryside. And we would just um, get amongst it, get in there, join in the fun, track all the columns, track all the, uh, the, the, the training taking place. Uh, watch all the rail movements, uh, watch the air program and, and generally make a nuisance of ourselves um, in areas which ostensibly were still open to us because we had no idea it was a TRA. We left we left um, West Berlin on the Monday. How on earth could we have known? So that was always a that was always good skills. Yeah, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Now, we, we talked about your your approach to touring. Now, with your language skills, you, you engaged as much as possible with both uh, the East German population, but also any um, Soviet troops you came across that, that were amenable to conversation. Yes, I did. Um, uh, and I did so because, well, I was fortunate enough to be a native speaker of German uh, and I, I could pass reasonably well in Russian as well. But the main reason is that we were our official title was the Allied Liaison Missions, and I just thought that liaison 
should extend beyond the formal activities of liaison, such as being the link between the commanders-in-chief of British Army of the Rhine and the group of Soviet forces Germany. In other words, formal meetings, formal exchanges. But I thought our job was to was to include, to project ourselves to the East German people and to the Soviet military. So um, I would take every opportunity to do so. On my very first tour uh, with this warrant officer in the SES, we were driving through Potsdam and parked at the side of the road was a, a marked vehicle and it had written on it, Commendatura, which is the local commandant of Potsdam Garrison. And they were the people who had jurisdiction over the missions. And they were the people uh, who would come and arrest you. So immediately, the the instinct amongst the rest of the tour was to avoid these people. But I asked to stop the vehicle. I just pulled up next to them and got out. And this chap was sat in the car. And I introduced myself and I shook his hand and we just got chatting. And he was... He didn't know how to react, really. I don't think he was. He had been expecting to see a mission just pull up and, and pass the time of day. And I think we had a cigarette each and we just chatted and about nothing in particular. And we just got in. I got back in the vehicle and on we went. And that was an approach that I extended to the East German population as well. We had to be quite careful because the East German population themselves were under surveillance and uh, if they were seen talking to us, the repercussions from the secret police could have been severe. So we used to have to choose our opportunities carefully. But if we were out and about and we came across farmers or we came across walkers or we came across uh, railway workers on their own or Soviet soldiers who had been abandoned by their units because their vehicle had broken down or traffic regulators, or anybody, for any reason, I would just stop and have a chat to. Uh, petrol station, attendants. And uh, sometimes the information they gave us w- was of use. Other times it was just banal banter. And, and other times they just didn't want to know for fear of being themselves uh, targeted. The most joy I got was from Soviet soldiers who invariably were, were very young and hadn't a clue where they were. The, all that had happened would be their, their vehicle had broken down or they had been left at a crossroads to direct traffic. They didn't know when they were going to be uh, picked up. But all that sort of low-level information about their units and, and, and how they were treated and the food they got and what their pay was and their conditions, all these things which soldiers will in, invariably chat amongst themselves from any nation all this was all low-level information and and intelligence which um which which was of use to to some people in london apart from that aspect of course it, it it helped dispel the myth in both our minds and their minds that we were anything other than brothers in arms and uh the average soviet officer and soldier unless they were the political officers was perfectly approachable perfectly amenable uh, and had the same worries and fears as all of us did. And um, when you broke down barriers by chatting to them, you could get an awful lot of information. Apart from distracting them whilst one of your tour crew went and did something else to their vehicle. I mean, that was another side of it. But th- the point is that liaison I interpreted as being much wider than 
just taking reels and reels of technical photography and um, long-range video of their latest radars and all the rest of it. It was getting to know the individuals, the human, the human face behind this uh, Soviet war machine. So um, I used to take every opportunity to, to, to chat to people and usually break the ice by offering them uh, a cigarette. And then we would get into the business of swapping stuff. And um, my nickname in the mission became Swaps. And I used to swap items of clothing, British badges for anything they would give me. And I, I, in my time in the mission, I collected over 300 badges and bits and pieces, uniforms. Uh, and in exchange, uh, I would give them the good old British Army green woolly pulley, cat badges, berets. Uh, I used to have a little bag with me in the back of the vehicle, just stuffed with rubbish, which, which the uh, quartermaster had had given me, lightweight trousers, even socks, just just to just to give to people, and they would give you something back. And I've I've ended up with this collection at home now, which um, is just gathering dust, really, and uh, it, it means a lot to me, <laughs> but it doesn't mean much to my wife. She would much rather it went in the local skip, but I've I collected loads of stuff from people who um who, who swapped and, and even gifts that were made to us i had one east german farmer uh we engaged in conversation just chatting and he said just wait there I'm gonna, i've got something for you and which made us a little bit worried because we thought perhaps he might be going to ring the stars or something anyway he came back and he gave me his iron cross he just gave me an iron cross which he said he had won in this in in the last war he didn't tell me how he had won it. He didn't tell me his name. He just said that he wished me to keep this safe. And uh, he blessed us. And, um, you know, these little acts of uh, kindness stuck in my mind, along with people who helped us in times of need. We, I remember overturning uh, in a Gelendewagen one icy morning as we were approaching the Soviet training area called Letzlinger Heide. A deer ran out. The driver... Um, tried to avoid the deer. We went into a, a skid. We went into a ditch. We rolled the vehicle, and um, a couple of injuries, but nothing, nothing too major. But I went to a local house and uh, knocked on the door, and uh, uh, I'd, I had a cut on my face. And so he would have opened the door to find a British officer there with blood on his face and saying, "Can you help?" And uh, they did help. They gave us um, refuge there. Um, they allowed us. They allowed me to use their telephone to ring the mission house in Potsdam my payment to him was the deer carcass which I left him which he was absolutely delighted with they hadn't had fresh meat for a long time but I, there was this roe deer which had been uh, which had collided with the vehicle and um yeah we, we we gave them the carcass of the roe deer and I never did go back to thank them for their kindness in fact I didn't I I haven't been back to um East Germany at all, apart from once uh, later on in my military career when I was back serving with my own British regiment in, in, in West Germany. But other than that, I haven't been back. And, I, and that's one of my regrets is that there were people there who, who went out of their way and put themselves at um, some risk to assist us. And it really restored my faith uh, in the Soviets and the East Germans, having had this um, diet of imminent disaster and world war three while serving in germany is once you get to know these people you realize that they're just like you and me just like you and me did you have any opportunities for interaction with the nva the east german army yes now they that, that was fun with the nva 
they were a, a totally different kettle of fish. Maybe it was the fact that we were operating in their country as opposed to the... Maybe it was the fact that their levels of discipline and training were better. Whatever the the reason, the NVA were a much sharper opposition than the Soviets. They had their equipment was much worse than the Soviets. The Soviets would ensure that the East Germans never had anything that was better than their own. They used to give them lower quality. That's why the NVA army uh, operated T-55s and T-72s, whereas the Soviets off- operated T-64s and T-80s. But when you encountered an NVA unit, you had to be on your guard. If if you could rely on the Soviets on, let's say, 90 seconds, two minutes of surprise time in order to get your job done, you could rely on about 15, 20 seconds with an NVA unit. They were much sharper and they were also very happy to use either their vehicles or indeed their rifles as weapons. So they would be uh, much more prone to opening fire or ramming you than the Soviets and indeed... Um, uh, there are many tales of NVA units ramming mission vehicles, sadly ending in the death of a French uh, staff sergeant, I think he was, or warrant officer, uh, who was killed when uh, a, an NVA truck rammed him deliberately. So you just had to be a lot, lot sharper. The ability to speak German helped buy you a little bit more time if you were, if you approached um, the, the the East Germans, uh, as it did with the. Um, the the Volkspolizei who would who would be invariably monitoring most routes, and there was uh, one incident when uh, we had waited all night to capture uh, the new Soviet air defence system at the time. It was um, SA eleven, uh, and we had we had stayed up all night waiting for first light to break before we did the dirty dash into the training area, and. Um, we waited until we had sufficient light and then we went and we went into the training area and we drove right into the middle of this of, uh, of this deployment of Soviet um, SA-11 missile system. And we managed to get off two rolls of film and then they were on our tail. And so we uh, at that point, we just handed over to the, uh, the driver to get us out of trouble. And he did. But we were we were followed by a Volkspolizei uh, larder. And we had this wacky racist chase up Route 2 with this with this Volkspolizei vehicle right up on our rear bumper. And eventually there, there were some mad overtakings going on and uh, the driver did extraordinarily well to avoid a, a collision. But we ended up in this cornfield and the, and the Volkspolizei vehicle was right parked right up against our bumper. And before he could get out, I got out and I went round to his door and I just started remonstrating and effing and blinding at him for being such an irresponsible individual, putting all our lives at risk and how dare he, what was his number, what was his name, who was his boss. Uh, and I just, and he just looked at me with a, with an open mouth and I, he just had no idea uh, what was going on. And I I just mouthed off at him for a couple of minutes and then got in the vehicle and drove off. So that was an instance of where the, the, the German language and that particular approach to touring um, got us out of trouble. But, um, well, in fact, it wasn't me that got us out of trouble. It was the, it was the extraordinary skills of uh, a driver who sadly passed away only uh, a month ago in, in, in avoiding much more serious consequences than, than took place.
You, you mentioned there the, the MVA being perhaps a little bit more fond of using their rifles. Can you tell us anything about any incidents where you were fired on? In my um, two years in the mission, I was detained, arrested 11 times and was involved in uh, three shooting incidents. And I'd like to think that they weren't avoidable. But if I search... If I searched my conscience as far as it'll go, I was probably pushing my, my luck. I was trying to gain access to a training area where they had positioned guards on every access route. And we tried to get in and in and we, and it was clear that whatever was going on on the training area was sufficiently um, sensitive that they wanted to make sure that no one transgressed. And uh, we, we just toured around and tried to get in and in. And eventually we found a way in. And then suddenly we found coming straight on at us was a BRDM2, a, a, an armoured vehicle. And uh, we were heading towards it and it was coming at high speed towards us. And uh, all I remember saying to the driver was, get us out of here. And he slammed the brakes on and he put it into high reverse and he was driving on his wing mirrors alone because there was no rear view mirror out the back. Everything was black in, in the back of the G-Wagon. So he was driving at high speed up this track in reverse with this armoured vehicle now about, I don't know, 50 yards away uh, with two people on top and they just raised their weapons and opened fire. And um, at which point there were a few expletives from inside the vehicle and um, the driver uh, put us into a, a, a really a fast handbrake turn or J turn, I think it was. Uh, and then we, we, shot round the corner and we disappeared out of sight and at the time we we thought it we thought it was wonderful you know it was it was exciting but I, when we when we stopped and, and had a coffee when we got out the area and we thought oh my goodness yeah there but for the grace of god as a result of which there was a um a protest which has which was lodged by the uh, British chief of mission and it was also raised by the commander-in-chief BAOR and a formal protest was made about the the unnecessary use of of, of lethal force and, and an apology was was offered but um, you may know that in 1985 Arthur Nicholson was was, was shot dead by a young sentry who um, who opened fire when um, Major Nicholson was was near a, a tank installation in, in Ludwigslust I was also uh, confronted with with, with with a soldier who who, who cocked his weapon. Uh, I had boarded a train at night with a um, with another very very experienced uh, tour NCO who, and we were trying to find out what a piece of equipment was that we could see on the train, but it was covered in tarpaulin, and we wanted to remove the tarpaulin and find out what it was. And we observed this train for a long time, and we couldn't we couldn't detect any. Um, any real security there was a guard that came out from time to time who patrolled along the track but other than that we, we thought it was okay it was in railway sidings um and eventually he and i got out and we boarded the train and we were we were crawling along the train from from uh from one uh, wagon to another and then suddenly around the corner was this soviet soldier i'm not sure who was who was more surprised um he or us anyway he cocked his weapon and uh, I, I didn't really react. Um, I didn't really have a chance to because the tour NCO who was with me, who was also in the Royal Tank Regiment, um, just grabbed me and threw me, threw me off the bloody train. 
and it was in the middle of the night and we didn't know and he just threw me off the train and we landed on the um landed on the floor we got up and, and we ran back to the vehicle where our driver had already heard the commotion and he had started the engine and we just piled in and we disappeared but the soldier that had uh, confronted us with his weapon he dropped his weapon he dropped his weapon he cocked his weapon and he dropped his weapon but at the time it it, it was uh, maybe some would have regarded what we were doing as foolhardy as that in as much as the the gain the potential gain of what we were doing wasn't worth the risk but uh we were we were tasked to find out uh it, when whenever new equipment was coming into the country the new equipment usually came in by rail it was usually covered by tarpaulin and the only way that um that you could identify equipment was by by um uh looking underneath the tarpaulin so at the time uh, it was perfectly justifiable to us what we did. As I sit here now, 30... Is it 30? No, more than that. I think, what an idiot. <laughs> what an idiot. But it was great fun. It was great, it was great fun. There are photos and videos illustrating this episode in our episode notes. Look for the link in the podcast information. Now, this podcast would not exist without our financial supporters, and I want to thank one and all of them for their generous support. If you want to help us, just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information. And you can also join our Facebook group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Thanks very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information